everyone. Welcome to the Style That Finds Us podcast. Today, we are here with Dr. Rachel Hers, who is a Canadian and American psychologist and cognitive neuroscientist recognized for her research on the psychology of smell. She is actually a worldwide leading expert on this subject. She is a TEDx speaker and frequently is quoted in the media on the subject of scent. She is on the faculty of Brown University and Boston College, and she has written three books, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Scent of Desire, and That's Disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's wonderful to talk to you guys. Rachel, start by telling us what is the impact of smell on our mood? Well, there's a very profound and uniquely powerful connection between smell and mood because none of our other senses has the direct neurological brain connection to the parts of the brain where emotion and emotional memories and associations are processed except for smell. So instantly that you smell something, it's actually being coded and processed emotionally. And there's none of our other senses that have this special privilege to those areas of the brain. So when we feel something, obviously it also, so emotion and mood are a little distinguished by sort of the generality of them and the duration of them. Most people think of an emotion as just like a fast and fleeting thing, whereas a mood is more general and can last longer. So if we smell something and it makes us feel invigorated or excited, or even if it reminds us of something quite specific, there'll be you know a period of time where we're in a particular emotion, but then that will bleed into having a larger mood and that can last for a long time. So you could end up feeling really good and happy for an extended period of time. And I've been telling people these days that that's especially important, you know, when you have to be by yourself and you're looking for ways to comfort you and ways to make you feel less anxious, smell is a perfect solution. Right. And in the research, I was reading that people's lives are almost ruined when they lose their sense of smell, which is horrifying. Yes, they, it really can be you know, completely devastating. And you know, it obviously depends on the person. So not everyone is equally impacted. But for some people, it really does turn their world upside down. And there's a combination of factors. One is their you know, personality. Maybe they were someone before who really cared about smell. But even if they were someone that never really you know, paid attention to smell, took their sense of smell for granted, as a function of the interactions, like I just mentioned, between First, smell and emotion, also smell and memory, also smell and learning, also smell and spatial abilities. They're all actually affected by smell and very intimately and uniquely connected to our sense of smell. The way you think starts to change and in a negative way, your sense of self starts to change in a negative way, your feelings of confidence, your connection to the world, your feelings of being able to be intimate with other people, um, your feelings of being able to even just to be sociable change and all for the negative. And this isn't even touching on what people automatically think is the most obvious, which is how food just loses all of its pleasure because taste is only the sensations of salty, sour, sweet, and bitter. Everything else comes from our nose. So people almost always say, you know, the taste of bacon, but the taste of bacon is only salt. It's the aroma of bacon that is comprised of about 150 different chemicals that gives us that bacon sensation when we're eating it or smelling it. So, you know, the, and then when that's gone, people get very upset because food is such a great pleasure in our lives. 
And also they don't have the ability to detect warning signals that we rely on our sense of smell for, like smoke or spoiled food or poison and so on. So it really is, it's unfortunately, it's an invisible disability, but can really ruin people's lives. That's very, very serious. Sad. Yeah. Um, and it's so interesting how smells do bring up memories. I mean, immediately you're right back in that place. Why, how does that happen? Well, just like with emotions. So the way that smells become connected to memory is that, you know, something is happening in your life at, the, at a particular moment and there's a smell there. So it could be in the background. It could be something that you're consuming. It could be the, the fragrance of another person. But there's a smell connected to that moment. And even if you're not particularly paying attention to that smell, that smell becomes encoded with whatever you're experiencing. And one of the things that's really special about the sense of the smell as well is that there's many scents that we may only encounter in one kind of unique situation. So let's say it's the smell of a particular perfume that somebody was wearing when you had like a special experience with them. Mm -hmm. Well, it may be that you never come across that perfume again. And as a function of that, that that fragrance becomes like this unique memory tag for that person. And so years later, if you were to smell it, you'd be overwhelmed. Oh my God, it's that person again. Mm -hmm. And because of these intense neural connections, it can happen really instantly. But one of the other really interesting things is sometimes that happens, but we don't know what it's connected to. Mm -hmm. So we'll smell something and we'll go, oh my God, I'm feeling like this intense nostalgia. I'm feeling like, you know, there's somebody really familiar that I'm close to, but I can't really figure it out. And that can actually persist. And it may be the case that you don't figure it out. Or you may get to the point of, oh, my God, there was that friend of mine 20 years ago who always wore yeah. the scent and nobody ever has worn it since. Yeah. So it's really interesting because we can ex live and experience smellscape without language, without the kind of analytical thinking that we do with all of our other senses. So another thing about smell is it can be this completely enveloping other world. Wow. That makes sense. It happens to me a lot with... Um like a scent will remind me of an, a hotel where we, where we stayed when we were young. And I'm like, but I didn't know, you know, I walk in somewhere and I'm like, God, it smells like the grand hotel. And it brings back all these wonderful memories, but I can't, it, it's just the weirdest thing how your brain stores all those smells. Basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, so one of the reasons, like I just said, is because that only that smell may only be connected to one thing and not be something that you smell all the time. So for right. example, the smell of coffee is not going to work like that because right. we smell it all the time. And there's lots of common smells that won't have this kind of impact. Right. But the other thing about our sense of smell that's really special is that the first association we make to it is the one that gets indelibly imprinted wow. in our brain. So afterwards, if we have you know, different associations, it's that first one that's going to last. And so that's why it often brings us back to childhood, because that's when we're mostly experiencing first things for the first time. That is fascinating. And that is exactly what it is. This hotel is down in on the Mobile Bay and has lots of live oaks. And there's sort of, you know, kind of a musty smell, beautiful uh, wooden mahogany walls and everything. And I remember it makes me think of this boy I had a crush on. We were sitting on the playground right under the live oaks. And every time I, was, that's just so fascinating how you go back to childhood. The first time I'd never been anywhere exotic like that before. Oh, wonderful. That's, that's a perfect example. Okay. That's really cool. So the amygdala is actually where emotion and emotional memory is processed. And what's known as the primary olfactory cortex. So the, 
the area in the brain that processes smell, uh -huh. encompasses the amygdala as well as the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is another related and connected structure that is involved with associative learning and memory as well. So getting those associations laid down and being able to dredge those memories back up, it's the amygdala hippocampal complex. And the hippocampus is also really involved in spatial awareness and spatial mapping and navigation and so on. And another really interesting thing that often goes kind of more unnoticed is that when people lose their sense of smell, they can often feel like they can't figure out how to get, you know, from here to across the street or I used to be like so analytical and I could do all these things and now I can barely figure out how to and that's actually because of this function that the hippocampus also has. Let's talk about why are some smells repugnant to one person but not another. I'm a vegetarian and have always been very sensitive to food smells. I'm not sure why I'm not a fan of meat but the taste, texture, and smell have truly been horrific to me since childhood. <laughs> So there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, there's the associations that you may form with them. So, you know, if your first associations with certain smells were like you were feeling sick to your stomach and so forth, then that's going to be the kibosh on liking those smells. But the other thing is, and you mentioned this before we started, you know, this formal interview is that you're very very sensitive to smells and the more sensitive that we are to smells and this is everybody by the way has a unique nose so no two people unless they have an identical twin has the exact same receptors expressed in their nose for detecting the chemicals that are smells as anybody else and the more receptors you have for specific kinds of chemicals so for example eudelium may have a lot of uh sensitivity to chemicals that are meat related, let's just say. And those chemicals are going to smell really strong to you. And the more strong something is, no matter who we are or what we are, the more it can be aversive. So if you smell like a, a perfume and it's like at a nice medium concentration, you're like, oh, that's really nice. But then if someone is like dousing a bottle of perfume over their head every day, you're like, oh my God, you're choking on it because it's way too strong. But if you right out of the gate are perceiving smells like bacon or other meat and so forth as being really strong, it's going to be really unpleasant to you. And that could have initially also triggered you feeling kind of sick to your stomach, which would have then been coated along with the smell and you would have been like, no, no, not going there. Discussing the psychological importance of wearing a scent, even when you aren't around anybody else during lockdown. Why is that? I always, that's, I always look for my perfume even though I know I'm probably not going to be seeing anybody, it's just knowing, you know, just smelling it myself. So is this a perfume that you wear every day that you can still smell when you spritz it on? Pretty much. But I have a couple that I go back and forth from, with. Okay. Yeah, because that's important because one of the things that happens with our sense of smell is that if we are exposed to a scent every day mm -hmm. or, or for long periods of time, we actually stop being able to smell it. And something that happens very commonly in the perfume world is that someone will buy a fragrance and they love it and so on. They're wearing it every day. And then they feel like after a certain point, the genie kind of fled the bottle and what's going on? The scent fell out of my perfume. And that's because they've adapted to it. But the smell is certainly still there. And that's what happens when people start overusing fragrance, like, you know, with my example of pouring a bottle over your head. So... Um, but if you rotate through several different fragrances, you can still have the opportunity to keep smelling them. 
but going to your question about why you would be doing this is, is exactly for all the things we've been talking about. First of all, it is emotionally positive for you. You like it. It makes you feel good. And it's probably also soothing and also probably makes you feel like kind of, of normality. Like, you know, right. the normal times, I like to call it BC before COVID, where right. you'd be putting on fragrance every day to meet with clients or meet with people and so on. So it kind of gives structure and a, a calming, soothing sense of normalcy, I think. I think you're right. I really do. Same thing with like lip gloss or lipstick. Yeah. Brushing your hair, just doing those those rituals, basically. Yeah, and also getting used to something. I remember going to friends' houses when I was younger, and the house would smell very strong to me and have a very <laughs> specific scent, but those people couldn't smell it at all. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's exactly the phenomenon of adaptation. So it can happen to our home. It can happen with our fragrance. And the interesting thing when it comes to our house and also to the perfume that we wear every day is that we have to actually be away from it for a fairly extended period of time. Like if you go on vacation for two weeks or something and then you come back right. and you walk into your house, you might go, oh my God, <laughs> it has a smell I didn't ever smell before. And part of it may be because all the windows and doors have been closed. So, you know, there could be things that are developing in there while you were away. But the other thing is that it probably basically smelled like that all the time, but you couldn't smell it anymore right. because you lived with it. Yeah, that is very interesting. We're taking this class right now. Um, Yale has a free class online called the Science of ha Happiness and Wellbeing or just the Science of Wellbeing. And they talk about hedonic adaptation. The first. Mm -hmm taste of coffee the first bite of ice cream it just goes downhill from there because <laughs> your body gets so used to it so yeah well that's that's something i talk a lot about in my book why you eat what you eat how you know the first few bites are so much more pleasurable than subsequent ones and kind of a formula that i tell people to think about when they're thinking about food my my mantra is like nobody should be you know restricting themselves don't deny yourself of anything then you're just going to obsess about it but let's say there's this you know chocolate cake that you really want to have well, pay attention to the experience of pleasure that you're having while you're consuming it and balance the equation of how much pleasure am I getting versus how much, how many calories or whatever else you might not want that goes along with that. And so, you know, you'll say like the first bite, that's really amazing. It's really delicious. The second bite and the third bite, maybe also. But by after that, it's probably beginning to drop off in pleasurableness. And that's when you say, okay, I can stop. Sure. Right. That's good advice. That is great advice. And I was also interested hearing you talk about this delivery situation with food, for example. So if you used to go to a restaurant that you loved and that whole experience mm -hmm. of the social experience, even though you're not necessarily fully concentrating on the food because you're having a social sure. conversation, but versus you getting it delivered, that's a completely different experience and or you're probably sitting in front of the TV, not experiencing it at all, even mm -hmm. if you think that you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, one of the big problems with eating these days is how distracted we are. So oftentimes people will eat while they're working, you know, they're sitting at the computer or they'll eat while they're watching TV or eat Hi. while they're driving or doing and all kinds of other things. And when we're distracted from eating, there's a number of things that happen. First of all, we're not getting the pleasure, like we're not noticing, oh, wow, this, you know, tastes really great or, you know, I'm really enjoying this. We're also not getting nearly as satisfied or satiated. We don't feel nearly as full from eating whatever it is. And so that also leads to extra consumption. 
And so when we pay attention, and I, I mean, this is kind of taking the word mindful, which I actually dislike, to more literal terms where yes. you actually just think about what it is you're doing and give it some attention. And then you'll realize that it tastes really good, or maybe it doesn't, or now you feel full, or maybe you don't. So, you know, all these things that bring your awareness to what you're doing are really important for maximizing both the pleasure from it and also feeling like you know when you can stop. Right. So you don't keep doing it. That was very interesting too when you were talking about if you're stressed, chocolate doesn't taste as good because that's when everybody wants chocolate. So they're just eating way more, but they're not getting what they're trying to get from it as much. Is that correct? Exactly. So the taste of sweetness is actually decreased when we're stressed due to the stress hormones in our body actually changing the sensitivity of our taste buds. It's really quite fascinating. Yeah. You know, the neurotransmitters of noradrenaline in particular, which is what we get sort of a surge of when we're really anxious or stressed, actually dampens down the sensitivity that we have to sweet. So if we go for something sweet, whether it be chocolate or ice cream or whatever, and we want that sweet hit because sweet is actually innately really pleasurable and innately it turns on the reward and pleasure centers of our brain. You know, you don't have to have any prior experience. This is how we all are and we're all geared and wired this way because sweet is a really, really important signal for carbohydrates, which we need. I mean, we live in a world beyond you know our evolutionary past but it was a time when first of all and it's still the case for many people actually today depending on where they are right. that you know the next meal is really a concern and you need energy and you need calories and that's what sweetness um sort of signals mm. and so we all love it because we need to be able to we need to eat that mm. but um, when you're stressed and you sort of feel like, oh, I want to feel the comfort of, you know, something sweet. I want something to make me feel good. I know that when I eat ice cream, it really, you know, makes me feel good. And then you're super stressed. That sweetness isn't going to give you the bang for your buck that you're hoping for. So we tend to eat more. So there's the sort of double-edged sword, you know, comfort food can actually make us feel really good in the moment and relieve some of our stress. But if we're overstressed and we don't get the same level of comfort for it. We may overeat and then we have the emotions after the fact of guilt and everything else until we feel worse. Ah, that's such a dilemma because when you're super happy, you really don't think about, I, I want to eat a candy bar. <laughs> yeah. All righty. That's interesting. I know. And during lockdown, we've really been trying, thanks to the science of well-being class, to savor and mm -hmm. really just like eat the ice cream and taste it and all mm -hmm. the things. <laughs> How to pick the perfect perfume? Well, that's all about you. You know, you can't have somebody else tell you what it is that you should wear. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I did a perfume study a number of years ago, and I looked at how old people were. These were all women. And this was in Sephora and Times Square, where I stopped people and I got, went through this questionnaire with them. And one of the really interesting things that came out of the study was that depending upon how old you were, you chose perfume for different reasons. And what was particularly interesting is the 40-year-olds in my study. And so it may be now that it would be 50-year-olds because back then, you know, 40 was the new 30. Uh, maybe 50 is the new 30 now. But right. In any case, <laughs> exactly. Um, but in any case, the women who were in their 40s were like, 
it's what I, if I like it, I wear it. And it doesn't matter what my friends are wearing. It doesn't matter what my boyfriend or my husband wants me to wear. It's I wear it because I like it. Mm-hmm. And at different ages, you know, younger women were more influenced by what their friends were wearing or more influenced by media and advertising. Older women were more like, I wanted to wear this because other people like it or it was a gift oh. of more sort of doing it for other people. But I think that so you can have lots of reasons for picking perfect fragrance, but I always go back to what you like. And so, right. you know, it's very individualistic and you should just experiment and try to find fragrances that you like. But one of the things I do, and Allison, I think you mentioned this, was that if you have and sort of have a special fragrance that you can attach to particular special events. Mm-hmm. So if I know that I'm going on a really special vacation, Mm-hmm. Like I celebrated my 10 year anniversary with my husband last year. And I specifically went and bought a perfume to be the perfume that I wore on that trip that I was not going to wear again, except for if it was a very special occasion. And we went to Hawaii, which we'd never been to before. Wonderful. So I wore that perfume all the time we were there. And now when we're back, I'm, I like smell it every now and then. And it's amazing. It just brings me right back to that time and place. But I want to only use it occasionally because I don't want to sort of, you know, make it connected right. to other things. So it's like the special fragrance. And then I have a perfume that I wear every day, which unfortunately I mainly can't smell. Um, <laughs> and then there's a couple of others that I have that are also connected to special events. So, you know, it's, I feel like it's important to get kind of a memory library with your smell. So you can have a bunch of perfect fragrances that connect to past perfect times. <laughs> Great idea. Do you think that perfumes smell different on different people? Yes. I mean, to a certain degree, it, it's sort of, I mean, I don't know if you remember the Prince Machiavelli ads from, I think they were in the seventies. I don't know why I was a really young kid, but they stuck with me at the time. Uh, the, all the women in a line and then someone was smelling them and the, the perfume smelled different on everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can, that can be the case. You know, it depends on, the oiliness of your skin depends on a couple of other factors connected to sort of skin chemistry, um, mm-hmm. connected maybe also a little bit to where you're putting the fragrance on your skin, and then you know your own body odor is going to mix with it as well. But you know, there's there's much more similarity between how fragrances smell on different people than there are differences. Mm-hmm. And everyone has their own unique body odor, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Just like we have our own unique nose, we also all have our own unique sense. Oh my goodness. And then is that influenced by what we eat? Like what are the cultural differences in body odor, for example? So that is influenced to a certain extent by what we eat. And we have, let's say, you know, for example, if you were running on a treadmill and the sweat that would come off you then is a certain kind of, very, it's very watery sweat, and that's what's most reflected by what we eat. So if you're eating garlic or spicy food and so forth, that would come off in that kind of sweat. But the sweat, and so many people, you know, people from different cultures, depending upon the cuisine, can have a certain, let's say, that kind of smell to them because of the spices and so forth in their diet. But then each of us all underneath that has a unique body odor that's represented by a by different glands than what produces that watery sweat. And that actually comes into sort of maturity when we go through puberty. And it really is to do with our own very specific bacteria and so forth that live on our skin. We all have bacteria that live on our skin. It does good things. And the way that the bacteria respond to the proteins that are being secreted by what's called the apocrine gland and 
eating those proteins and then producing this scent that is us. So that is why we all have this really unique scent. And what's really, really interesting is that our body odor is the external representation of the genes of our immune system. And everybody has a unique immune system as well. And this is very important for health. It's very important for finding a compatible mate to have children with. It's very important for a variety of things. And it used to be even in its terms of its connection to health, doctors would use their nose to diagnose diseases because there's consistency. And for example, diabetes, people's breath would be particularly sweet. But then, so, but in any case, we all have a unique scent and that's how the tracking dog finds you when you escape from jail and you left your scarf behind oh. and doesn't go after anybody else. <laughs> that's fascinating. Okay, I'm gonna pivot here for a minute because um, what, what I was fascinated with when I was listening to the audio book was the super tasters and the tasters and the, like how do you know which you are and what does all that mean? So whether or not you're a super taster, a taster, or a non-taster is also genetic. And so it's not anything that you have control over. It's what the genes you were born with. And it has to do with the number of taste buds on your tongue. So if you have a ton of taste buds on your tongue, you're a super taster. If you have the medium amount, you're a medium taster. And if you don't have all that many, you're a non-taster. It doesn't mean you can't taste. It's just that things are less intense. And the way that you can determine this, if you have some purple food coloring, this is something more to do with kids, is if you put purple food coloring on your tongue and you stick your tongue out in the mirror, if you're a super taster, you'll see tons and tons of these tiny dots. Um, if you're a medium taster, you'll see fewer. And then, you know, again, if you're a non-taster, fewer. Still, you have a lot, but just not as many. Mm -hmm. But if you want to kind of have another version of this test, ask yourself if you like things like black coffee, IPA beer, endive, other bitter leafy greens and so forth. And if you like those vegetables and drinks, you are probably a non-taster, maybe a medium taster. And if you can't stand those tastes, um, then you're probably a super taster. And that's because the bitter in those compounds, bitter is the opposite of sweet. We are programmed to dislike bitter taste because it most often in nature signals poison, except for the exception of some healthy leafy greens. Um, but bitter it's gonna be super intense for super tasters. So the, the super intense black coffee bitterness is gonna be bad. The IPA beer is gonna taste like way, way bitter. And we do not like bitter, so we will reject it. So the super taster experience is that everything is more intense. So spiciness also, you're not gonna find many super tasters who enter habanero eating contests. <laughs> um, also creaminess is more intense, which is sort of a good thing. So if you're eating ice cream and you're a super taster, you may need you probably eat less ice cream because you're getting, you know, a lot of that creaminess and you're enjoying it and you don't have to eat as much, except if you're super stressed or distracted, you might. <laughs> but um, in any case, it, it basically just kind of changes your food world depending upon, you know, whether or not you're a super taster, a non-taster, a medium taster. Well, I think we're super tasters and you were saying that there are some negative things that go along with that. Yes, unfortunately. So as I mentioned, um, because of the fact that super tasters, I am one as well, we do not like bitter foods at all. So we do not like the bitter leafy greens, which are really healthy for us. And as a function of that, we are not going to make any effort usually, except if we really try to include these foods in our diet or, you know, eat things. Also, another thing that are bitter 
cruciferous vegetables like Brussels sprouts, broccoli, and so forth. All these, these, these vegetables are actually really good antioxidants. They're also often cancer preventative. And what was found and has been found in several studies is that people who are super tasters actually have higher incidence of various forms of cancer than non-tasters do. So we have to, as super tasters, be really mindful of making sure that we eat our our leafy greens, our leafy vegetables, our bitter <laughs> vegetables. But there's a trick that you can do if you're a super taster. Actually, the one taste that super tasters are more tolerant of, because they've probably been doing this throughout their life and therefore they become they're more adapted to it and so they're happy with using lots of it, is saltiness. So if you put salt on bitter vegetables, it actually becomes a lot less bitter. And so that's the way, you know, roast your Brussels sprouts and sprinkle salt on them, and then they might be okay. <laughs> that's exactly right, as long as they're roasted and they're really crispy. I mainly mm -hmm. spinach, but that's fascinating because, uh, yeah, I mean, I love salt. You're the 100% yes, super taster. Right. I just baby. eat a lot of blueberries and a lot of spinach. But the rituals of surrounding yourself with scent. So like lighting a candle each night, even if you're alone, it doesn't have to just be for a romantic thing. And thinking of it as a part of a self-care regimen, which is something that we are trying to encourage people to do, especially during lockdown. Well, I mean, the answer that I would say is kind of connected to things we've already talked about where like you wouldn't want to use the same candle all the time. If you're distracted from the candle, it's not going to really have that much of an impact. So probably my answer to this isn't as fulfilling as it might be, but because I think that it's more important to use candles more for special occasion setting okay. rather than for every day using the same thing. However, it may be just the act of lighting the candle which is independent of its scent, that's something that makes you feel good and something that kind of sets the tone for your day or makes you feel like you're engaged, you have structure to your time and so on, which I think we're all really needing a lot of more structure now since the structure of, of usual work and so forth is missing. Mm -hmm. So for those reasons, these rituals can be important. But I think the scent aspect of it, you know, sometimes can get lost. Right. You know, it's interesting too. We put a candle that we had, I think we had just gotten so used to the scent. I put it into this large, um, like glass votive candle holder situation to put outside. We're at the beach so that it wouldn't blow out. And then we could smell the candle so much more like, Oh, now I remember the scent of the candle. I'm not sure why that was, but I think too, maybe just looking at the flame and everything is a comforting. Yeah. Um, the whole Absolutely. experience. So a lot of times yeah. when you think you're tasting something, part of that is the smell. So when people say they lose their sense of taste, but they it's really smell. Yep. It's well, that's what I said earlier on about how taste is just salty, sour, sweet, and bitter, and everything else comes from our nose. So while we're eating the aroma molecules from the bacon or the fruit or the vegetable, whatever it might be, are going from the back of the mouth up into the nose, actually through the mouth. And while we're chewing, we're getting the taste of, let's say, salty or sweet or sour or whatever on our tongue. At the same time, this aroma is actually hitting the olfactory neurons and creating that sensation of smell. And together, that's what produces flavor. <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. Is there science behind the fact that some people like sweet and some people like salty things? So that just, I mean, one of the things that we've already touched on a little bit is how 
uh, people who are super tasters tend to use more salt. And the more salt we use, the more salt we like and the more salt we use. And it's like a positive feedback loop. So there is like this sort of idea that the more you use it with respect to salt in particular, the more you like it. And so people who consume more salt are going to like more salt and so forth. With respect to sweetness, um, it's not exactly clear why certain people like sweetness more, but they definitely do. And it may be to do with the configuration of taste buds or like how many taste buds they have of particular types. But it's, but interestingly, what's I think especially fascinating about the, the sweet tooth people is that they're often actually nicer <laughs> than who are not, we who are not particular do. sweet cravers. And this has been shown in a couple of studies where people, not only are they generally speaking nicer, but anyone, if you eat a little sugar, can briefly feel a little kinder and happier. So something that I've kind of advised, you know, somewhat tongue in cheek is that if you have a, you know, an important meeting that's going to be difficult with coworkers and so forth, of course, we can't really do that at the moment. But before, when we used to get together for these meetings, if you brought like donuts to the meeting or something like that, then then everyone would have that little bit of sugar and maybe be a bit more agreeable in discussing the contentious that. issues. Agreeable is my favorite word. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> love that. <laughs> so we talked about body odor before, and we talked about the fact that those glands are developed during puberty. Talk to us about how smell affects our physical attraction to someone else and the perfume, the role that that or cologne plays in that, that it kind of masks it, and also the issue with birth control. So um, just briefly, like I mentioned earlier, so each of us has a unique body odor. It's the representation of our immune system. And for women in particular, this is especially important in terms of choosing a mate because women have a big trial and tribulation to go through in order to reproduce. And the background for all of this is the idea that this comes from the biological principle of the selfish gene. We are, you know, our bodies are just kind of vesicles for vehicles for, you know, getting our genes out there into future generations. And the most successful individuals are the people that have as many offspring as possible who then have children themselves and so on and so forth. So that's from a kind of an evolutionary biology perspective, what makes someone, you know, master, <laughs> as it were, or mistress. So the more children that you have and the more they can have children, the more successful you are biologically speaking. Now, the number one most important thing for a child to be able to have children herself when she grows up is that she's healthy. So the most important thing for a female in terms of finding a mate to have children with is whether or not she's going to have healthy children with that person. And by the way, this all is only really reflective of heterosexuality. It doesn't go into cases where, you know, there's homosexuality because biologically speaking, children would not be involved. But in any case, in the case of heterosexual attraction, women are actually finding mates for the most part whose body odor actually represents that they have a complementary immune system with themselves because they have so much more time and effort to expend in the act of reproduction than men do and therefore want to make sure that all that effort actually comes to fruition and therefore have a healthy child and so on. And so what studies have found is that in terms of, for example, many people have probably heard of this, these t-shirt sniffing studies. So when women whose immune system genes were typed and then men of different immune system genes were 
wore these t-shirts overnight and then women sampled them, women specifically chose the t-shirts of men who com compared to themselves were more different in immune system genes than similar. And so something I like to say is there's no Brad Pitt of body odor. So for each woman, because everybody's different, there's gonna be a different set of men that smell good and another set that don't smell so good. And by the way, when it comes to sexual intimacy, if a man does not smell good, it is like the, the iron curtain comes down. There's no way. <laughs> and it doesn't matter, you know, how good other things can be, but that is like the stopping block. However, and uh, you just mentioned this, Celia, if you, if a man is wearing fragrance, you know, I could, a man could be wearing this cologne that I really like, and that could be masking his natural body odor, and I could be really attracted to that cologne, really attracted to him. And maybe what happens at the beginning of the relationship, he's wearing that cologne all the time. So, um, you know, we're, we're together and I, I really love how he smells. And then I end up, you know, falling in love with him and so forth. And then over time, he stops wearing that cologne because he doesn't care anymore. And now I can smell his real body odor. Well, interestingly, what often happens then is it's because, you know, we're in love with him. So the emotion attaches to a scent and we can get over that barrier then. However, what's also really interesting is how the most sort of significant complaint in marriage counseling that women will mention is that I now can't stand how my husband smells. So what's going on there, there may be a couple of different things. And this relates to what you mentioned about the birth control pill. So if you met your partner while you're on the birth control pill, you're also going to be geared towards choosing someone who is biologically not so compatible with you and therefore potentially not gonna yield the most healthy children possible. And that's because these studies of the sniffing t-shirts and so forth have found that when women were on birth control pills, the men who they found most sexy smelling were actually ones whose immune system was more similar to them. And so if we have a, someone who's more similar to us, you know, it might be good for a couple of things, but it's also mainly bad because if we're carrying anything recessive that could be bad and someone else has that too, that's going to be negative for any child we might attempt to conceive. And there's all kinds. And also if we only have, let's say, protection for a certain set of diseases, and then we meet someone who has the exact same set of protection, that's not going to be that good for, you know, the possible child we may have. So we want a child who's got maximum illness coverage, uh, minimal recessive gene, you know, lining up and so on. And by the way, the genes of our, our immune system are not necessarily related to the genes of anything else. So they're not related to our hair color or eye color or anything like that. So you can't just go on, on visual inspection and, and make this choice. <laughs> so anyway, um, what happens though, why the birth control pill seems to make us pick men that are more genetically similar to us is that the birth control pill mimics the state of pregnancy hormonally. And when, um, this is a study that's have been done in animals, when animals are pregnant, they wanna stay near family for protection. And so they are being more attracted to the smell of males who are more similar to them because that probably represents that they're more likely to be family. And so the extrapolation into humans is that potentially what's going on here is that women are, while under birth control pill influence, finding the scent of males who are more immunologically similar to them more attractive and that could end up being a problem later on it could be a problem in terms of having trouble 
have, getting pregnant for the couple. It could be a problem maybe if they have a child could have some disorder themselves. And then it could be a problem if the woman has gone off birth control pills and then later on, you know, her husband's a total jerk and now she realizes what he smells like and now she can't oh, stand God. it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh so many things that's really bad to think about so many people that were on birth control pills when they met there's a whole huge segment of the population like that yeah well i mean these things don't dictate everything they're just factors that underlie some of the things that we experience and as you mentioned early on you know there's so many factors and so you know it's such a complex set of things that go into our attraction that go into our relationships and go into our life right and they would never know that that had anything to do with it i'm sure playing this role underneath it all that is sort of guiding us in certain directions or others but one of the things that i suggest to people who are going through these you know marital counseling and you know maybe they really actually want to stay together mm -hmm. is i recommend that they go shopping for a fragrance cologne, let's say that the woman really likes, and that the guy then wear that while he's being super fantastic and you know keeps wearing that <laughs> so that you know she'll be able to associate, you know, maybe he's actually a nice guy after all and there's a new fragrance and um and I like it. That's a great idea. There is hope. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Okay, now tell us about your books. Tell us what they're named and how you came up with the idea and what they're about. So my first book is The Scent of Desire, Discovering Our Enigmatic Sense of Smell, and it's all about the psychological science of our sense of smell, what I've been talking about a lot today. Mm -hmm. And I came up with this idea because of I was actually asked to be an expert witness for a case where a woman had lost her sense of smell in a car accident, and this was a case where the insurance company was like, who cares, it's only your sense of smell, here's a penny. Um, I'm being, you know, hyperbolic, but anyway, they didn't want to pay out very much money. And she was someone whose life, she was the sort of quintessential example of someone whose life had been completely turned upside down. Absolutely everything about her life had gone totally south. You know, her relationship with her husband, her decision to have children, her work, her social life, her, she became totally paranoid um, that her body odor was smell, you know, she had a smell so she wouldn't go out. She was extremely depressed. The connection between smell and emotion in terms of depression is very significant. And everything about her life had just completely been destroyed. And so talking to her and as I uh, may have mentioned earlier, I mean, I've been working on the sense of smell for 30 years. This is what I first did my research on. And although I've done research on a number of different things along the way, it is the common, not just thread, it's the common rope that, you know, I constantly come back to and constantly I'm also working on. So, you know, here was someone who I realized, and she, you know, when I would speak to her, she literally broke down in tears saying, I always took my sense of smell for granted. I never realized how much it was involved in absolutely everything that I do and experience in life. And I felt like, okay, I have to write a book for people to wake up and smell the roses <laughs> and make them sort of realize, because you don't want to have to wait until you have the misfortune, if you do have the misfortune of losing your sense of smell suddenly. And so I wrote that book sort of as a as a, you know, kind of drum call to be aware and appreciate your sense of smell. And then after that book, um, you know, a lot of things happened. It was, it was reasonably successful and people were contacting me for, to do various things. And one of the people that contacted me was a woman who worked for the company that made odor readers. And they hold a national contest every year called the National Rotten Sneakers Contest that kids eight 
ages 8 to 15 around the country participate in. And these are kids that have won regionally their worst smelling sneaker, you know, sneak off. <laughs> so they have the stinkiest, they have the stinkiest sneakers in wherever they're from. And then they all come together to compete to have the stinkiest sneakers yeah. in the country. It's not kids actually from every state, but you know, in any case, it's, there's a, there's a, there's a number of them. And she said to me, we would love to have you as a celebrity judge this year. And I'll just jump to the punchline that I've been doing it every year since then, except for this year when it was canceled mm -hmm. um, because of COVID. But in any case, it ended up, at, so first of all, she made it sound like it was going to be a lot of fun, which actually it is. And then, and at the beginning when I was doing it, it used to be at this resort in Stowe and I like to ski and it's like, you have this, you know, expenses paid, beautiful trip and time in Stowe. You can spend, you know, extra time there and, um, you know, other things about it. She kind of convinced me that it would be a good idea. So I agreed. And anyway, there were a couple of months between when I agreed to do this and the, and the actual contest. And I would tell people, guess what? I'm going to be the celebrity judge for the National Rotten Sneakers Contest. <laughs> and I was consistently met with horror and like, are you crazy? Do you know what this is going to be like? And so I started thinking, oh my God, what did I agree to? And really worrying about how horrible it was going to be. Because I also actually have a pretty you know, sensitive sense of smell. And I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be so bad. And I really got myself worked up to just imagining or trying to imagine what could be the most horrible smells in the whole universe. And when I got to actually doing it, now, I'm not saying that there was any way, you know, it smelled good there. It's pretty gross. But it was not nearly as bad as what I had imagined it could be like. And I started thinking about how interesting it is, how the way our mind works with respect to things that are disgusting can really change how we perceive what is disgusting or not, or to the degree that we think it's disgusting. And I started really being interested in how much psychology was involved in our experience of disgust as also there's so much psychology involved in the experience of smell and what smells are disgusting and so on. And so I had the idea to write my second book called That's Disgusting, <laughs> <laughs> Unraveling the Mysteries of Repulsion. And it's all about the emotion of disgust and kind of taking us through from kind of the basic fundamentals of it all the way up to what moral disgust is and how we behave socially and how it's involved in all kinds of interpersonal and moral decision-making and so forth. And so that was my second book. And then I was thinking about, well, what am I going to write about next? Um, well, what do I love to do? Uh-huh. Eat. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, well, why don't I write a book that actually more than just a few people are going to be interested in? Because that's the that's disgusting book. You know, unfortunately, the topic of disgust, people tend to be disgusted by. Oh. So it wasn't like that was in my bestseller. Um, <laughs> although I personally like the book. But in any case, and I encourage all your listeners to to look into it because yes, it's, it's pretty fun. It's a fun book. And in any case, I decided I wanted to write about food. And so my most recent book is called Why You Eat What You Eat. And that it's all about discovering the science behind our relationship with food. And that's actually unsurprisingly or maybe surprisingly, that's been doing pretty well. Because <laughs> I'm not the only one that likes, it turns out I'm not the only one who likes to eat. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And everybody wants to know why is it that I like this when my husband can't stand it or, you know, my husband will never accept the fact that I don't like, like chicken wings, you know, something he's, or whatever he eats. And it's just not, something that appeals to me at all. And why is that? Yes. And so in this book, the book, Why You Eat What You Eat, I talk about, so the first 
half of the book really goes into how our senses, all of our senses, so vision, hearing, touch, smell, of course, and taste are involved in how we experience food. And the second half of the book is really all about how our psychology and our social situation and all the you know media advertising and all kinds of other things interact to influence our perception of food and how there's this sort of bi-directional interaction between our mood and what we eat and how what we eat can affect our mood and you know why it is that you don't like chicken wings but your husband does and so on. <laughs> well I'm definitely gonna read more of that book. Ideas for how to translate buying perfume digitally since you cannot smell it. So there, you know, it's interesting. I've actually spoken a fair bit about this recently, uh, unsurprisingly, given that, you know, we currently can't go to a department store and, and do a lot of testing. And, you know, the problem too is that perfumes are not literal. So when a, when a creative perfumer gets a brief for, you know, make a new perfume and I want it to be like the woman should feel or the man, whatever, should feel like they're at the ocean and feeling really confident and beautiful and there's a, you know something phenomenal happening and there's some person that they're really attracted to and all of this is like super abstract and right. so the perfumer then has to like turn that concept into a scent and um when they do this it's not like for instance if you were to smell something like coffee and go oh i really want coffee or smell something sweet and go i'm now i really want a, a muffin or a pastry or whatever here's a case where the Sort of concept of it often may not even translate at all into what the creative perfumer has turned into the perfume. So it is actually pretty difficult, I think, to transform fragrances from scent into visuals or words. But I think that there are creative ways people can do this by instead of necessarily well, using both visuals and words, but trying to create sort of emotional feelings and sensations while people are say viewing a little video and so forth so the feeling of what the scent might be like it can be experienced and then the person can go okay this is the feeling i want to have and this is what this scent supposedly will give me the feeling of and then trying that out and you know the problem is also though that for different people that may or may not work and so it's going to hit for some people and it's going to not hit so much for others and so what i think is important right now is if what people can do is get little samples to smell at home. So rather than rather than buying the bottle of perfume for $100, you can, let's say, pay $10 and get samples of, a, let's say, five or so different fragrances that probably are in the category that you would like. And then you can select from them, you know, which is your favorite. That's really a great idea because sometimes when you do that at the store, it's too much anyway. So if you got them sent to your house, you could try them on over a period of days and hours. So exactly. That, yeah, no, that's, I think so too. Yeah, that's really smart. Do you want to talk about comfort smelling? Comfort smelling, you know, it's actually something that people do naturally. And for example, if, and it's actually something that women do more than men, but men do it as well. And people do it of all ages. So a loved one who's not with you, you know, maybe they left a sweater or some other article of their clothing that they hadn't washed in between, you know, wearing it. And even if, you know, and when we smell it and it just, you know, we get their fragrance, whether it's perfume or we get their fragrance of their body odor, probably a mixture of two. And it actually really conjures that person. Mm -hmm. And we can really feel that they're right there with us. And that is a really emotionally powerful aspect of our sense of smell and it being able to 
make relationships feel so much more deep and intense and connected. And one of the things that I've talked about now and recommended now, if you can't be with the person whom you love, then, you know, for instance, if you're doing Zoom or FaceTime or whatever else, you can, while you're looking at them, you know, smell if they had left something at your house or if there's a perfume or a fragrance you know that they wear that's connected in your mind to them or even actually, you know, their favorite food, something that kind of brings the depth and the context of that person up to the forefront emotionally for you, then you can feel a lot more connected to them when you're talking to them. And so you can feel your presence with them and you can feel that sort of emotional comfort of them to a higher degree than you would if you were just talking to them either on the phone or Zoom or FaceTime. And that can actually really be soothing. And even when you're not talking to them, if you just want to, you know, deliberately go and smell them, um, you'll feel, I think, a lot more comforted. So that's actually I think, something really important we can do these days. That's fascinating. Really, really, really helpful advice. Great. I mean, another thing, just to sort of add on to that a little yeah. bit, even if we are meeting with people that we feel close to, if they're not, you know, living in our house with us, we're not getting close enough to them probably to hug them, which means we're not getting close enough to smell them. And right. if we're wearing a mask, we're also probably not really smelling them either. So this is something that you could do, like if you had a really good friend who, you know, you, you want to meet up with, but you're going to walk six feet apart down the road together, right. and, but you want to kind of feel them more, you could, you know, smell their perfume or smell you know, their tea, if you had some article of their clothing or some, some scent that really reminds you of them, so that when you're doing this kind of weird social distancing with them, you can still feel like you have another level of connection with them at other times. That is very interesting. Do you feel like that's something, you know, like my father has Alzheimer's, so he is in, you know, real lockdown in his um, Alzheimer's unit, even though my mother's across the you know, she's in um, independent living, but would that be something they can't see each other? They can see each other through the window, which is kind of confusing to him. But if he had a pillow or something with her scent, or is it when you have Alzheimer's, you, it doesn't work that way because he recognizes her. So what's interesting, actually, loss of sense of smell is the first warning sign for the development of Alzheimer's disease and can appear decades before the onset of the overt symptoms of memory loss and all the rest of it. So what, uh -huh. I mean, it's not always the case, but there's a very high correlation with loss of sense of smell, you know, early on. So if someone's like, you know, middle-aged and suddenly having, you know, real difficulty with their sense of smell, that could be a warning sign for being tested for Alzheimer's disease because this, or, and the other disease that's very commonly kind of heralded years and years before it actually starts is Parkinson's disease. Wow. Because with both of these neurological illnesses, and they're both progressive and mm -hmm. ultimately end in death, and there's no cure currently, mm -hmm. is that the earlier the treatment can be started, the better the long-term prognosis is. But because as the disease progresses, no matter whether or not the person had smell loss to start with or not, it always ends up going there. So although there are several people, and I've actually just been reviewing this literature coincidentally myself, several studies have recently tried to use smell for conjuring memory of, of different people or someone's past with Alzheimer's patients or also trying to help use it for emotional regulation because sometimes people with dementia tend to get very agitated and so forth. And, you know, could you use smell to kind of calm people down? 
So I would say though for that, because the smell loss is such a significant factor in these illnesses, mm -hmm. that they really are only effective at the early stages of the disease. So if your father is very progressed um, in Alzheimer's, it's probably not going to be helpful. Now that's not to say you shouldn't try. Sure. Um, sure. And you know, you know, you never know what's going to happen. No. So certainly try, but I would be cautiously non-optimistic. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's really fascinating about um, a form of early detection that people probably hadn't really ever thought about. So the other thing, so actually what's really amazing about loss of smell when it's sudden and abrupt like that, so first of all, it's a signal for potentially for Alzheimer's disease, it's a signal potentially for developing Parkinson's disease, and it's a signal for potentially having COVID-19. So it's a really important warning sign if you suddenly have a change in your sensitivity to smell or if things suddenly don't smell like they used to, you should really get checked out. And the things not smelling like they used to or losing their sense of smell really abruptly, that's plus, that seems to be what's happening with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, is there anything we can do to prevent losing our sense of smell at some point in our life? Well, unfortunately, just like with our other senses, our sense of smell will start to go, although there's a huge degree of variability. So some people are in their 80s and they have, you know, their sense of smell is fine. However, most people, by the time they're in their mid-80s, have experienced some relatively, you know, mm -hmm. degree of uh, olfactory loss. And this is because our sense of smell, the neurons in our nose are constantly regenerating and we're getting a new nose all the time. But as we age, what happens is the die off of the, of the neurons is still happening, but the replacement isn't happening as efficiently or frequently. So you're getting fewer and fewer functioning neurons for detecting smell. Um, but, the, you know, there's things that we can do. Definitely one of the things that seems to be really encouraging is to do what's called smell training which is that what you do is um, whether or not you have a normal sense of smell or you're noticing with age, let's say it's decreasing or something has happened where you've lost your sense of smell and you want to get it back. Um, let's say through viral infections, this often happens anyway, you know, COVID-19 independent. Um, we, what you do with smell training is that you take a set of common smells and you smell them, sort of each of them, sniff them deliberately, you know, for uh, let's say 10 seconds each, multiple times per day. And doing this very deliberate focused smelling actually is good for both improving your sense of smell and also for increasing, you know, um, the potential for smell if you've lost your sense of smell. And there's some really good kits out there. I've worked with someone who the scent guru actually has a kit. If you go online, you can find a kit for smell training. And I think it's a great thing for anyone to do. And, but especially if you have any smell loss, that's either from an infection or you know just through aging the more that you do this the more you're going to keep it up ah great that is very 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 good news what's next for you and where can people find you so what's next for me in terms i'm actually working on a new book right now but i, I don't have a contract yet so sure. i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say what it's called um <laughs> But uh, I hope it's going to be more focused on health. And I think that I'm hoping that it'll be like, you know, something that people will really gravitate towards given, you know, what the world is going through at the moment and hopefully, you know, in the aftermath of this, um, both psychological and physical health, it's really geared towards. Mm -hmm. And where people can find me. So you can look for my website, www.rachelhurst.com. 
I'm also faculty at Boston College and Brown University. So you can find me in multiple places. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your incredible insight and information. And we encourage everyone to check out Rachel's three fabulous books. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about our show, subscribe to our podcast, and also scroll to the bottom and give a rating and or a review. Those are the best ways for other people to find out about our podcast. See you next time. Bye.